0: You're listening to TIP.
1: What I find with real estate, people just always find that they're going to wing it. They're going to, for some reason, they're just going to figure it out as they go. And it's like, well, why is that any different than any other job?
2: In this week's episode, I talk with Mel and Dave Dupuy about how to overcome tragedy, whether or not you can time the real estate market, how to find hidden cash cows, what OPM is and how to use it, what a 97% tenant is, and much, much more. Mel and Dave Dupuis, well-known as Investor Mel and Dave, are innovative real estate investors who have solely acquired over 226 apartments in just a few short years. Investor Mel and Dave are also founders of the Action Mentorship Program, a high-end mentorship program dedicated to helping individuals create their own time, location, and financial freedoms. They say, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together, In this episode, you'll learn how to work together by utilizing other people's money to scale your portfolio. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's dive right in.
0: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Mel and Dave Dupuy. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey,
0: thank you so hey, much, hey, Robert. Robert, for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us.
2: Before we dive into the nitty gritty on your strategies and your real estate deals, tell us a bit about yourselves.
0: Dave and I, we are full-time real estate investors. Our specialty and what we're known for is buying properties. Worldwide, using none of our own money
1: and without joint venture partners. As of now, we had about 226 units. We sold a couple of duplexes and triplexes. So we're over 200. We solely the own them. Our specialty is no joint ventures, none of our own money. And Mel and I, uh, well, I used to be a full-time firefighter and Mel worked at the local college here. So and we retired in our 30s. That's pretty much us in a nutshell.
2: From a high level, what does your portfolio consist of? Usually when we talk about people with hundreds of units, 100, 200 units, you're not hearing the words duplexes and triplexes. So do you have a hundred duplexes?
0: It's all of the above. We have a villa, we have a condo, we have a single building, we have some smaller ones and, and some bigger You know, 50plex and, and bigger as well. Yeah.
1: Our biggest building is 50plex. Yeah. I think we have about 33 commercial units, like actual commercial tenants, like doctors, pharmacists, psychiatrists restaurants. We have, I think, 12 or 13 storage units. And then the rest is pretty much residential. But yeah, anything from a single family dwelling condo up to 50 units Our biggest as of today. So a mix. And the only thing I don't have yet or we don't have yet is a home park. And fingers crossed, it's coming in the new year. So working on some deals. So that's uh, we're a mixed bag.
2: With such a mix, do you guys have a favorite? Have you found a class that, or a type that has really kind of stuck out to you that you like the best?
1: The storage is really low maintenance, right? But it's not as much of a higher dollar amount. Um, Some of the the bachelors they they rent very very quickly, but they might be a little bit more headache. So it's different pros and cons. But my favorite is multifamily.
0: Yeah, multifamily Um, I think is what essentially helps us quit our both our full time jobs and really scale our portfolio. So yeah, I'd say the same. That's it's definitely my my favorite. I I do yeah exactly. I I do like to diversify my portfolio, but multifamily is my favorite.
2: a lot of the listeners are relatively new investors. And some of the advice that a lot of experts give is that new investors really need to focus on one strategy or one niche before they kind of expand out into all these different things. Obviously, you guys have a lot of experience. It's probably okay that you're doing so many different strategies and property types. When you first got started, did you start with just one strategy? And if so, do you think that's a good approach for new investors?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our main strategy is buying multifamily properties, Using that our own money and no joint venture partners, and that's definitely how we were able to really scale our portfolio since then as you grow and, and you have a bigger network and, and whatnot now we've been able to diversify we're buying outside of Canada we're buying worldwide and buying different types of units but I would agree get really really good at, at one thing what you're passionate about find out what that niche is and and then once you have a bigger portfolio then exploring different adventures is is worthwhile
1: and Robert this didn't happen from day one, right? Like From the onset, it was always multifamily. And then as we started to grow our portfolio, all of a sudden, we started buying a building that, all, that had maybe a commercial on the bottom floor and then apartments upstairs, and then maybe more and more of mixed units building. And then we only just bought our fully commercial building when we're in our office building this year. So it, it wasn't from, from the beginning. It was kind of a gradual thing, but definitely pick a niche, excel at that first. That's my opinion anyway. And then from there, you can branch off as your comfort level grows, but it was multifamily apartments from day one.
2: When you say multifamily, does that have a minimum unit count? Is Because right, two units is technically multifamily, but are you talking five units plus, so it's a commercial multifamily or even 10, 20, 30 plus?
1: Yeah. And, and I love that because everyone has a different definition, let's say. But yeah, as long as it was basically two units or plus, like you're saying, and it was actual Residences where people are living. And so that's what we would just call multifamily. So that's what we basically specified or specialized, sorry, in the beginning was apartments for people to live in. And then once we got comfortable with that, bigger buildings and then commercial and storage.
0: And our strategy behind it was that people will always need a place to stay. And especially as you're starting off, if I buy a fourplex and if by chance one of the tenants don't pay out of the four units, I still have three rents coming in. And that was really, really important for us as we were trying to replace our, our income. So that's why we really went through the, the multifamily route.
2: Tell us a bit about how tragedy struck for you guys and how it changed your mindset around your careers.
0: And this was back, uh, I guess, a few years ago now in 2018. We were actually on our way to a real estate investing conference and we got in this horrific car crash. We were, we were passengers in the back of the SUV. Careless transport driver. He got charged, was driving carelessly, and um, he hit a vehicle that hit us. And we literally started rolling four times across the highway. We landed upside down. It was a day that was, you know, one of the scarcities of my life. I have three kids. And during that moment, we thought we were dying and and we felt so helpless and thinking, wow, you know, what are we leaving behind? Are my kids going to be okay? And all of that luckily we survived the crash miraculously somehow yeah, I don't know because um, they that. can't believe that that we survived but we did and it was a day that forever changed our lives in so many reasons I mean we never used to mentor anyone we we, we didn't really thought we'd be <laughs> helping other people in fact we used to have the mindset of wanting to keep all these scarcity big time to, scarcity mindset to ourselves but afterwards we thought you know what we have this large portfolio um, at that point I think we had almost a hundred doors and we thought why aren't we not helping other people scale their portfolio as well through the strategies that we've been able to do? And that we've been able to help over a thousand um, students learn these creative financing strategies as well. Um, and it just gave us the freedom as well. Like I decided to quit my full-time job and I was able to do that because I already had created a portfolio for myself. And, uh-huh. and this is the power of real estate is that once you start doing it, and as, especially if you start using creative financing, you can scale at a way faster pace than you could ever do it on your own.
2: Why did that make you want to mentor people? And why did it make you reconsider your career that you were in? Honestly, a
1: couple of different reasons. And good question. When we were in the ambulance, and even in the emergency room after, and they were doing x-rays on Mel, because she got the, the worst of it, we would just thought to ourselves, if we would have passed away here, our kids don't even know how we're doing this. They were too young. They have no, no idea. No documentation yeah, anywhere. No idea how we're doing it. No legacy piece. And just, again, the scarcity and we were scared to share because we thought there wasn't enough deals and wasn't enough money out there. but then after we had that wake-up call, which looking back was I'm not saying I'm glad that it happened, but I definitely changed our mindset and now it just feels good, right Like whenever we have people telling us I purchased X amount of doors and I've quit my job and now I'm able to send my special needs child to a special school like that there's nothing in the world that feels good like that helping other people change their lives. so the legacy piece helping people and again, also helping our kids just understand how to do it. All of that together, if that makes sense.
2: With everything that's going on in the world right now, and even over the past year or so, people are debating whether or not they should hold off on buying real estate. Why do you think people should stop waiting for the perfect time to get started?
0: I mean there's no perfect there's time. There's no right? perfect time. Best day was yesterday, next best day is right now and it's very simple. Real estate, and you can literally draw a line if you do any research on it. Real estate, yes, there's zigzags, but always increases over time in value. And that's why it's so important to get into it now. And that's what we do. I mean, we're mm-hmm. always buying. Last year, about 119 apartments, for example, we're continuing to buy. We're diversifying both in Canada and the States and Costa Rica. I'm looking at Mexico and different areas as well. And, and that's the thing is that it will continue to increase. And even if they're Our dips in the market because we're buying whole strategists, it doesn't really matter because we're going to hang on to that property. And we know that over time, again, that arrow going up is going to increase in value.
1: Well, and think about it, right? I'm just thinking uh, the biggest growth years we've had. So 2020, 119 units during a pandemic, right? That's not a good time to do things, but we still did it. And in 2017, we purchased 12 properties in 12 months, which came up to about 56 units. Mel Dad had like two heart attacks that year. My dad passed away shortly. Like it wasn't a good time, but there just isn't a perfect time ever. It's just uh, so w- w- you know, if you're waiting for the perfect time, it's never going to come.
2: It's an interesting topic for me because I always thought that I was a little bit scarred from kind of like the oh eight oh nine kind of pandemic. I was young, so like I didn't really have any investments. So I didn't actually experience it firsthand, but I spent a lot of time studying it, and so I always worried from like when I became of age that. I was going to be buying towards the peak like people did in 07 and 08. And so, for probably two or three years, I didn't buy anything, not because I couldn't, but because I was trying to time the market. I thought that this was both in the stock market and in real estate. I always thought I needed to wait for the market to crash, then I would jump in. And I just realized that if the numbers make sense today as a rental, especially with a rental strategy, there's no reason not to buy it as long as you can maintain that property through a downturn.
1: I 100% agree, Robert. And I love that you have that mindset. Two examples that we always give is let's say I buy a building today for a million bucks, and a month from now it crashes, the market crashes, and now that building is worth 850, 800, you know, make up a number. It's not as if the tenants get a notice saying, hey, by the way, this building on paper is worth less, so you should probably pay less rent, right? Your, your debt servicing remains the same. I'm not saying I want my building to go down in evaluation. However, at some point it's going to go back up again, it might be worth 1.2, 1.3 down the road, you know or three years. And so that's, if, it, if the market crashes, it doesn't mean your, your debt servicing goes down. Typically, people can't buy houses and they end up renting and rents go up. And the other thing as well is, because we're using other people's money, the exit strategy is huge. And what I mean by that is, don't have a six-month plan or a one-year plan. Your plan should probably be three to five years, because if it falls out today and you only had a six-month plan, well, now you're stuck, right? So it's just having that long exit strategy, thinking Ahead before you actually purchase the asset and being able to uh, be insulated and weather that storm.
2: I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard this philosophy or thought about it, but one of the things that really kind of got me over this hurdle of not trying to time the market is if you're not buying when things are good, when times are good, there's plenty of capital going around, financing is easy, everything is like rosy, and you haven't done a deal yet, what makes you think you're going to? actually buy something when there's blood in the streets, you can't get financing, it's super hard, everything is crashing. Like what makes you think you're actually going to be able to do that and willing to do that? Like that was a re- a really big mindset shift for me.
1: Yeah, I love that. And to kind of compound on that is get your at bats, get your reps in, build up that real estate muscle while times are good so that that way when the market if it does or when or whatever when times get bad, you've already been there, done that and now you can actually not trailblaze but but have those systems and process in place. I agree with you 100, percent Robert. Yeah. I like it.
0: And we've seen it year over year over year. People are waiting. They're waiting and they're waiting to for that perfect time to to come and trying to time the market and trying to time it. And meanwhile, they're missing out on hundreds of thousands of dollars in in appreciation that like they could have got into their their portfolio and build their portfolio and build their knowledge and all of that as well. So yeah, absolutely. Getting getting into it now as opposed to waiting and waiting making sure you're doing it wisely and strategically, that you have your exit strategy, meaning how you going to pay people back, especially if you're going to be using creative financing strategies like we use. But absolutely, the time is, is always now.
2: It just amazes me that people will, you know, you go to be a doctor and you have to study for years, 10 years or so to become a doctor or professional sports, people spend their whole lives to eventually make it to the major leagues. But with real estate or even stock investing, people think, that they don't have to do anything and then one day they can just jump in the arena right it's like if you're a professional baseball player it's like never swinging a bat never going against the, a good pitcher and then one day just hopping in the batter's box against a major league pitcher and expecting to get a hit it's just not going to it doesn't really work like that and so i think getting the experience while you know things are good even if it's not a home run deal it's a good way to get some experience so you can dive in when things aren't as good
1: I agree with you, Robert. for some reason with real estate and socks, people just think, Oh, I'm gonna wing it or I'm just gonna I'll figure it out as I go. I find with real estate, people just always find that they're gonna wing it. They're gonna for some reason they're just gonna figure it out as they go. And it's like, well, why is that any different than any other job? Like you said. And like Mel and I to this day, we've spent probably over three hundred thousand dollars. And this isn't boasting or anything. It's just to show that success doesn't just happen, right? Like we bought knowledge, we purchased experience, which gave us time back. So we spent over 300K in our own development, coaches, mentors, all that stuff, personal development as well. And that has gotten us so much further ahead, so much quicker. And I wish I spent so much more money when I was a lot younger just to gain that knowledge and experience. Then I could have gotten even more time back.
0: And- And reduce some costly, costly mistakes that we've made. We definitely made a lot of those.
1: (laughs) And that's the thing is, um, it's just having that consumer mindset, Thinking I can do it all my own as opposed to having the investor mindset of, hey, you know what? I'm going to go find someone who's been there, done that, learn from their experiences, good, bad, ugly. And so I agree with you 100%.
2: How did you guys know that you were ready to quit your job? Did you wait until your cash flow from rental properties was 2x your salaries? Was there a metric you were following? Or how did you know that it was, all right, this is the time we're going to jump all in and we're quitting?
0: Great question, Robert. And this is something that we, went back and forth quite a few times. When's the perfect time to, to quit our jobs? And and we had quite a few. I mean, we had 80-some doors by the time I ended up quitting my job first. And and I knew that I could financially. For me, it was more of the, it was fear. It was fear of holding back. Financially, we we're okay. We we're making great money with our rental properties. But for me, it was that fear of, of three kids, pension, benefits. Once I quit, I can't go back. And, and I knew I was ready, but I, I just needed that jump. And then when I was, it was after the car crash, it all, it was kind of a domino effect, but I was off on, I had a very severe concussion and I was off recovering. And during that time, just thinking about work and I had severe anxiety about going back to work. I just couldn't do it. I'd start crying, just thinking about work. Like was, I was just in a really bad spot in my life. Everything was telling me that I can't go back. Yeah. And then we discussed and Dave's like, well, just don't go back. Like we're okay. And And I still had that fear, right, of of having to take that leap of faith, in a sense. But I did, and I probably with Dave's encouragement, like, hey, we're going to be fine. We have all these apartments. We know what we're doing. Um, and it's the best decision I mean I've ever made. Now I'm able to never once regretted. Not once have I ever regretted. I mean, now we we have the time, freedom, right? That I'm able to see my little guy get on the school bus and off the school bus, and that was my big why into wanting to get into real estate and spend time with my daughters. You know, all of that that came along, and then Dave shortly afterwards, uh-huh. um, was able to quit his job as well. So it was really reversing engineer, okay, what's our expenses, what do we need to live, how much is our pension worth, how much is our benefits worth a month, because obviously now we have to pay for our own all those things into consideration, and making sure that we had extra cushions, right, because we're, we're like, Dave, uh, Dave uh, still so declares himself like an onion, having lots of layers, layers. to ourselves, and that's kind of how we approach quitting the job. We were financially fine, it was just for me was that fear of doing something different.
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions it's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on the show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com M-I. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com M-I for an extended 30-day free trial. Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon? And millions of other queries right at your fingertips. Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right,
2: back to the show. Was there anything you guys did to make sure that your lifestyle didn't creep up as your rental property income? Increase because I think one of the issues that happens is let's just say somebody makes five thousand dollars a month from their salary, and then maybe they do a great job, they build a great real estate portfolio that's bringing in five thousand dollars a month. And so they're like, okay, well, I'm making five thousand a month for my real estate, I'm making five thousand for my job, I could probably quit. But what some people will do is they'll live on that ten thousand, they'll make sure their expenses go up to the ten thousand, and now they can't actually quit because their lifestyle has creeped up as their income creeped up from their real estate, and now their 5,000 from real estate doesn't cover their lifestyle expenses. So how did you guys kind of combat this from happening?
0: And you're bang on and great question. I think reverse engineering your goals, absolutely. And also having those extra layers. So let's say pretty much everything that we, we did when we started off. And I know people that follow us on social media, we have a nice house and we have a cottage and nice vehicles and all those things, but now it, now, it was not <laughs> always like that. I was six months pregnant living in a small two-bedroom apartment. We were and it was everything was very strategic. So we bought all the the rental properties first. We we kept increasing our income, and and quite frankly, we weren't really spending any of it. Um, we were saving quite a bit of money, trying to save, save, save. And then after a while, it became to a point like, okay, well, let's buy if we buy X amount of properties, and let's say we increase our monthly cash flow from 2,000. Well, maybe that can go towards my escalate, for example and then let's increase it by another X amount. And then that can be, we can get into our dream house that we wanted. And then let's buy another X amount and let's buy our cottage. So it was very systematic, but we always, it was almost like the double. If I'm going to spend 2,000 on this, I need to be bringing in 4,000 because having more apartments naturally come with having more expenses as well. You have, you have repairs to do. There might be non-payment of rent, right? So all those calculations need to be very, very strategic. You need to treat it like a business. Just like any other business, it's a business. You need to have layers, you need to have cushions. It was the opposite
1: of the rat race. Instead of getting a job and buying the expensive stuff and then being stuck, we sold all the expensive stuff, drove old vehicles, didn't buy the big house first, bought all the assets first, and then quit our jobs and let the assets pay for all our fun stuff. Yeah, so when it, was, it was
0: interesting because we started buying all those properties. People were seeing us buying all these properties. But meanwhile, I sold my brand new vehicle driving a rusty van (laughs) for for a loss. loss. And I'm sure they were thinking like, oh, I guess it's not going very well, but that was not the case. We were just being really strategic and we thought, let's just sacrifice in the short term to live the life we want to live in the long term.
2: I'm chuckling a little bit to myself here because I'm in the exact same kind of situation that you guys were in because... I'm the only one in my family that does any type of investing. I've, I'm on my third house hack right now, and I just put in an offer on another duplex for my next house hack. And when I was going to buy that property, my brother's three years younger than me. And he's like, You know, you're doing so supposedly so well with all these rental properties and the podcast, et cetera. Why don't you just go buy like a really nice single family house? I thought you could afford it. And he's like, Kind of mocking me in a sense. And I'm like, Just wait five years from now. And he's like, Well, you keep saying that. And I'm like, Well, five years from now, trust me. I'm I already have like 10 units or so. So I'm like, just wait another five years and then I'll buy that big you know, fancy house if I want that. And I'll have the fancy car then. And it's, it's just funny because I went through the exact same thing. People on the outside see one thing versus on the inside, what we're dealing with. It's so different.
0: Congratulations on your successes. That's awesome. But success doesn't just happen. And I think that's what happened. People see, oh, well, this person has this, or this person has this. I'm going to go in and do that as well. But they don't see the, the, there was hours put in, there was some work, of course, any success take works. There was some sacrifices we had to make to get there. And it was also very strategic. Even our office, we started off in our home office and then we bought an older building and now we're in a nice building that we really wanted for a while, but it wasn't the first one, right? it was it was step towards growing.
2: Did a particular purple, yellow book happen to uh, influence your guys' mindset by any chance? Yes.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. In 2017, when we bought the 12 properties, right in 12 months, that happened after we, we went on a trip to Florida and we listened to the audio books. We had the kids and we were doing pool stuff, listening to the audio book. And that's when, it, that's when it clicked. That is good. And that's when we started using OPM. That's when we started getting mentors and coaches. And the next year, boom, that's when the growth happened. And so, we
0: were doing it. I'm absolutely all wrong. We used to work all the time like they've the rich
1: don't work for money. Yes. Rule number 1.
0: And we were the opposite. We I was working three jobs, Dave was working three jobs just to try to get it. We were trying to save everything. Like we, our mindset was completely wrong and although the book didn't show us how to do it, the mindset piece absolutely it was a, it was a game changer realizing that wow, we're working, working, working and we're I mean 56 units, 12 properties. That would have taken us Probably, I don't know, well, at least, if not more, 20 20 years, maybe 15, 20 years. I don't know. It's hard to tell, but there's just no way we could have done that at the speed that we're able to do it if it wasn't for using other people's money.
2: Well, you touched on an interesting piece of that book that I talk about frequently. It's one of the most recommended real estate books. And I do think it's a good book, but I don't like how it doesn't show you how to do it. You know, the mindset piece is important and i think that's a good shift for a lot of people it's made a huge impact but for me i just i wanted to tell me how to do it like that's what i really wanted and that's one of the reasons why i didn't completely love that book but with that book and the millionaire next door those two books combined just completely changed my philosophy on how i viewed other people's kind of possessions i used to think people driving fancy cars must have been super rich because they had a bmw or an audi or something fancy and then after reading that it totally changed my my mindset of you know, they probably have a really large car payment and are stuck in their job because of that. And so it's it's been a big mindset shift for me.
1: It's funny. I remember, and I think that's why Millionaire Next Door, what was the other one? The Rich Barber. I think it was that one. I remember being younger and someone I read that. And I think that's why I was so okay with us driving the old minivan and selling the brand new car at that point, because it was a little bit of, back to that. You won't have a car payment. Think about how many more buildings you can buy in 10 years, five years down the road. We'll be laughing then. No one will remember that car that you had, but you'll be able to do what you want.
2: I haven't heard of that book yet. So I'll have to, I'll have to go check that out.
1: Wealthy Barber or something like that. The Rich mm-hmm. Barber, Wealthy Barber. There's one or two. Kind of the <laughs> same thing. Same thing as Millionaire Next yeah. Door-ish.
2: Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely go check it out you guys have a model that you call the new way or the easy way, which is compared to the old and hard ways. In your new way, you talk about how to find your market's hidden cash cows. Walk us through this step in your framework. How do investors find hidden cash cows that other investors are missing and why are other investors missing them?
0: Yeah. And I'll go first, I'm sure you feel free (laughs) to add, but a lot of people only look at what's posted on, on MLS, for example. And I'll kind of hit the the mindset and maybe Dave can get into the other things, but think of it as an investor. So if you are looking at five deals a week, and I'm looking at 20 deals a week, statistically, who's going to win? Who's going to find the most cash flowing, the one that can have the most appreciation, the one that where you can force appreciation? Statistically speaking, I'm going to win because I'm looking at more deals. So you definitely want to make sure that you're looking both on-market deals and off-market deals. And that means having conversation with people, letting people know. I mean, when we started wanting to grow our portfolio, we told everyone that we we're buying real estate. And and that was the domino effect that people all of a sudden, they knew that, oh, okay, Mel and Dave, and now we're on social media. But back then, we didn't have a, a presence. People started knowing that, okay, if I have a property to sell, maybe I'll reach out to Mel and Dave because they're actively buying properties.
1: And my other thing is kind of, how do I say this? Not go against the grain. Well, yes, go against the grain, but. I'm just thinking people get spooked easily. So online, I'm just thinking of a couple here. If they were listed for a long period of time, people think, oh my gosh, there must be something wrong with that property. I'm not even going to look at it. Just because it's been on the, the system for 30, 60 days doesn't mean it's a bad property. It just means maybe someone had it under contract and now it's come back on or whatever, whatever the circumstances are. But we've picked up properties that have been on the market. Like I'm just thinking one, the, probably the longest. It was on for like nine months, let's say. Two buildings side by side, it ended up being an awesome deal. The one building almost doubled, basically doubled. And the other one is going to close next month. We had refinanced it. Now it's selling uh, next month for the two hundred thousand dollars more than what we bought it. Right, and that's not boasting. It's just there was nothing wrong with these deals. It was on the market for nine months. We were able to negotiate, sell their financing, none of our own money. We actually use in Canada here. It's called RSPS, right, secured funds, just like four hundred one k. So one hundred percent finance deal, and it was just sitting there on the system for nine months, but probably people got spooked after two, three months of it sitting there, thought there must be something wrong. It's not even worth our time. So when most people are thinking it's not worth my time, we're still looking at the deals because there might be nothing wrong with that deal. It's just everyone else is spooked.
0: Again, that quantity of analyzing deals, analyzing them quickly and, and knowing, okay, is there potential here or am I <laughs> passing on as well? But yeah, taking the time to just gem. because it's been there doesn't mean that it's not a good deal.
2: It's interesting because there's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy there where if a property hits the market and it doesn't sell in the first couple of days, which a lot of properties are these days in this market, but if it doesn't sell in the first week or so, then people start to be like, oh, well, there must be something wrong, right? It's been on for too long and, or it hasn't sold. And then it self-fulfills from there. And then it starts to get on longer and longer. And the longer it's on, people are like, oh, there must be really something wrong with it because it hasn't sold yet. And it kind of keeps just self-fulfilling from there. And the property I'm sitting in right now, my house hack, it was the exact same thing. Things were selling in my market before they even hit the MLS or within just like a day or two and going multiple over. And I bought this property, I think it was on the market for 60 or 65 days and there was nothing wrong with it. It's a great deal. It's an amazing house hack and it's going to be a great rental when I leave. So sometimes, I mean, I think you guys are hundred percent right. I think sometimes people just overlook these properties for kind of frivolous maybe reasons.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: I mean, they followed found, the herd too yeah, much. And, we, we found deals all, all kinds of ways. I mean, you've stopped in and pulled in when you happened to see somebody outside. You thought maybe it's a landlord and you pulled over and had the conversation and was able to negotiate. And the first time he was no, but then he kept going over because he really wanted the building. And, and, you know, when you'd see him say, hey, well, have I you him, considered?
1: I saw him digging up. I saw the plumbers, two plumber vans, and I saw them digging up the front yard. And I was like, okay, he's ready to sell. He's fixing this problem. And he's he frustrated
0: up. right now. Well, so I have a solution for We lawyer, negotiated yeah.
1: seller financing right on the front lawn. And then we had the lawyers drafted up. So yeah, absolutely. It's just, it, it's seeing what others don't, basically.
2: And you never know what somebody else's strategy is. Maybe it doesn't work for one investor, so they're not going to buy it. And that's why it's sitting on the market. Maybe they want to do a, a traditional rental and maybe it doesn't work for that. Maybe you want to buy it as an Airbnb and it makes it's an amazing Airbnb. So you never know why it doesn't work for somebody else. If you are confident in your numbers and it works for you and your strategy, I don't see why you don't go for it. And you never know what the, like you said, what the seller situation is. For me, maybe this guy had received a couple offers on this property, but they weren't good enough. And then once it hit 60 days, he's like, all right, I just want this thing gone. And it just so happened that the timing worked out for me. And I know he was trying to offload some of his rentals because we ended up talking at closing because he was getting into some new development. And so it just kind of worked out, but you never know unless you kind of make those offers and, and try. Exactly. I mean, the next step in your new or easy framework is to leverage OPM. You guys have mentioned it a bunch of times so far. So first, tell us what OPM stands for and what creative financing is, and then explain to us how we can combine the two.
0: OPM is other people's money and creative financing is where you essentially use various strategies with OPM, with other people's money to grow your portfolio. And Dave and I, we really wanted to solely own our, our properties. So one way of buying is, is with joint venture partners. And not that there's anything wrong with that, that is a strategy. For Dave and I, we really wanted to solely own. Um, we wanted to keep 100% of the appreciation, 100% of the equity, 100% of the decision-making uh-huh. as well. And it was really important to us to solely own. But we were told, everybody kept telling us, you won't be able to grow on your yeah. own. And we kept thinking that, there has to be there has to be a way and then we realize that there is a way and it's that we can solely own. And, and it's a combination of essentially three strategies combined um, in different ways. But just to keep it simple for today, we do a lot of owner financing where the owner finances the deal or part of the deal. We do a lot of uh, private funds as well, or sorry, secured funds like in Canada, RSPs or in the States, 401k. And we do a lot of promissory notes as well, where somebody has money sitting there, they want to put it to work, they want to be investors, or they see the, how profitable real estate can be, they believe in it, but they may not want to be doing what we're doing, what you're doing, Robert, to find a deal and, and analyze it and whatnot. They just want to invest more passively. So essentially, we take those strategies. Uh, sometimes it's a combination of all of the above, and that's how we grow our portfolio. And, and that's where it becomes powerful. Because if I find a deal and I speak with the owner, or we speak with the owner, and for whatever reason, he's not willing to do owner financing, that's okay. I get a lot of no's as well. If it's an amazing deal, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to find a way to finance it because I know there's other people out there that want to invest in real estate. I just have to show them how I plan on paying them back and make it a win-win, of course, with them as well.
2: I've tried to use seller financing quite a few times in the past. always was told no. So it's not really being told no that bothered me, but I just made that offer on that other duplex I was mentioning before. And I asked for seller financing and I I don't want to say I had the expectation that they were going to say yes, but I thought that this was the most perfect opportunity for seller financing that I had come across. The other ones, I kind of expected a no because it wasn't the perfect opportunity for seller financing. But this one I knew was literally, if you could draw it up, this was the most perfect situation for seller financing. And so I was like really hoping that that was the case. And unfortunately, the seller said no. So I was a little bit bummed about that. But why was it so important to you guys to own it, all your properties yourself? Why why do you want to keep 100% of it? three
1: kids, right? And it's all about succession planning. And basically, the way we've structured ourselves, uh, the kids already own the real estate with us, we pass away, there won't be probate, there's nothing, there's no issues like that. So that was huge as well. And the other thing is, well, I guess Mel and I are very uh, like strong-willed or- Strong-minded. Strong-minded, <laughs> bullheaded, I've been called before. But, and, and it's just that, that element of, I, I've just heard so many horror stories of, yeah, no, me and my partner's and not just like a, a relationship, but me and my business partner split up, or it didn't work out, or and I, it was just we didn't have the appetite for it, and we just thought if there's a way to do it, then let's find out how. And in the beginning, like Mel had said, it was frustrating because everyone because that's the only way you can do it, the only way you can scale. And it's like the more people told me that, the more I was like, okay, well, I'm going to find the way to do it the opposite, then right? I'm going to go against the, the the herd. That's why we wanted to solely own it. And, and to go back, Robert, on your seller financing, like it's a numbers game. You have to ask. It's doable for anyone, anywhere. Like, Think about it. We're in North Bay, Ontario, Canada, and that mobile home park is in Texas. So I'm literally negotiating a seller financing deal from a little city, a little 50,000 population city in Canada with a seller in Texas. So it's doable anywhere. It's just the at-back. I know you know that, but I just want your listeners to know, just because one seller says no, okay, move on to the next one. Right? That just brings you closer to the next yes. Right. So just kind keep of on at doing
0: that as well. Right. Being able to know what to say, what not to say. And this is something that Dave and I have practiced a lot and 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 knowing, okay, Dave, when you said that, that didn't came across too too well. Or it's now, like, you it's know, it's like role playing for real yeah. estate nerds, right?
1: We kind <laughs> of go, go back and forth with each other, but yeah.
2: Yeah. You guys are absolutely right. It is a numbers game. And in reality, the no of the seller financing really shouldn't bother me. But one of the mistakes that I made was that I, I got a little bit emotionally involved in the property in a sense, because it's going to be a. House, it would have been a house hack for me, so I would have lived there, and so it had a lot of land, which is something that I'm looking for. Is not super common in my area, especially for a duplex, and I already kind of like envisioned what I wanted to do with that land, and so I kind of got a, a little bit emotionally invested, which I know you're not supposed to do, and so that was really more of the mistake than anything. But when I think about it objectively, you guys are 100 percent right. It's just a numbers game. You just got to keep going, keep asking about seller financing, and eventually somebody will say yes.
0: And just remember, we yes, we've been able to grow our portfolio substantially, but we we still get no's, and that's okay. But we also get a lot of yeses. So uh, exactly, just continue. And, and sometimes we sometimes we look back at deals that we weren't able to, to close on for whatever reason, and fast forward two three years, and now we own the property. Or fast forward two three years, and now we're thank goodness we never bought that property. Everything happens, <laughs> Sorry, as, it should, happens right? as it should. So.
2: If you're not getting, I was once told that if you're not getting any no's, then you're offering way too much money on all your properties. That's very true. Should new investors use OPM or should they wait until they have a bit of experience so that they're not risking losing other people's money? Should maybe they do one or two deals on their own, kind of get a handle on it, and then start to use OPM? Or do you think it's okay to just kind of use it right from the start?
0: Well, it's a loaded question, and I'll answer with <laughs> it depends. If somebody is going in blindly, they don't know what they're doing, they don't have an exit strategy, they don't have, I guess, essentially good education on how to do it. Yeah, you probably shouldn't be, you probably shouldn't be using other people's money if you don't know how to do it because it's, it is crucial. You are using other people's money. You need to make it a numerical, logical decision. You need to know exactly mm-hmm. how you're going to pay back the lender before you get into it. You should know the benefit. You should know how to explain it to them. You should know, okay, by this time, I should be able to, to pay them back and have the right kind of conditions and, and, and all those things that are important. So, can you do it from day one? Absolutely. But if you're going to, before you touch a penny from anybody else, you need to make sure you know what you're doing and getting that knowledge. piece. is like going to, to college to become a, or university to become a doctor, right? You wouldn't let somebody operate on you without that proper education. Well, I probably wouldn't let somebody touch my money unless I felt that I knew that they had the proper education on how to do it as well. And not just newbies,
1: Robert, we have people that come to us with four or five, 10 properties and they're like, "Hey, yeah, I've been able to do it with my own money, but now- I'm stuck. <laughs> I'm stuck and I want to make sure that, hey, I know how to buy properties with my own money, but I don't know how to build an exit and ensure that I pay people back and have that insulation." And so, yeah, absolutely. It's just anyone that's going to be using other people's money that should have that. What do we always say? It's kind of cheesy, but I forget what movie it's from, like with great power comes great responsibility or something. <laughs> I think it's Spider-Man. I
0: was going to say, isn't it a cartoon? Yeah.
1: Because <laughs> you become limitless, but you can get jammed up pretty quickly if you don't know how to, how to pay people back and structure properly. So yeah.
3: Let's take a quick break
2: and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. NetSuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show.
2: How are you guys finding other people to invest with you? Maybe more so at the beginning. How did you, when you were ready to take in your first money from somebody else? How did you do that?
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. And I'll I'll say a little story here. We had pre-negotiated owner financing with somebody on the phone, and um, but we had the numbers ahead of time, so we knew that the deal made sense. We had analyzed it. We just didn't see the property yet, so we actually went there, and we were newbie investors again, we were not the investor Mel Dave that people know us now as. We're just Mel and Dave showing up in a ACDC t-shirt and flip-flops. And we got there in our old meeting van and we went through the property. And you know when you find a property and we, we walk through and we're like giving each other the thumbs up behind the scenes and then we're like, okay, hey, the numbers made sense. Now that we see it, we're in and we want to do it. And we started speaking again with the owner saying, okay, hey, hey, let's. Uh, we're interested. What's our next step? And and all of a sudden, he just started pushing back and uh, we didn't we didn't get it because over the phone, he was open to opener financing. We had kind of negotiated, but now- The deal
1: was basically done. It was walking through the property to- Yeah. Yeah.
0: But now that he met us, he it's almost like he didn't want to lend to us. And, and it was one of those things. And, and I think he said, okay, let's make it happen. He, I think he said he was going on vacation.
1: I said, okay, we're in. Next step, I'll contact my lawyer. Let's draft this up. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you I'm on vacation. I'll get back to you in three weeks. And we're like, well, why are we waiting three weeks? Like you leave th- three days from now. You can have it to you today or tomorrow. And have and it let's, close in three weeks. Yeah, from now, well, yeah. By the time you're back, yeah, it will be due diligence and everything. And he kept put, putting us off. and we're kind of thinking what's going on and like okay well, i guess we'll call you in three weeks when we're back or you yeah. call us
0: so then we just turned around started walking towards the van and then click it's like it's us it really is us he's <laughs> he's probably judging us we're showing i not dressed professionally which is again first impression probably but most importantly i'm not showing him that we know what we're doing so we went in in the old rusty van and I grabbed our, our matrix that we, we always use to analyze our deals. And we showed him our exit strategy. And that was a game changer. So we, you know, we showed him, okay, this is how the deal is performing. This is how we plan on paying you back. And he was like, oh, okay, well, you actually know
1: what you're doing. <laughs> and then we said, don't let the van fool you. We could go lease or buy a brand new whatever we want. However, we're keeping our total debt to income ratios low. So that is actually insulation for sellers like you that hey, we don't have those big monthly car payments. We put money back into our buildings. So all of a sudden he loved the fact that we were driving an old vehicle and it made sense. So
0: Yeah. Uh, so I think it was getting uncomfortable, having a conversation, making sure that the seller in this case um, felt comfortable by because we showed him our, our exit strategy and how and funny story afterwards he was saying, Well, it's interesting because somebody else had came with a I don't know if it was
1: a he said a lady in a Cadillac. Or yeah, anyhow
0: had Come over, but she wasn't as serious, or it didn't come to fruition. And meanwhile, he was waiting on her for the deal, and never came to yeah, fruition. As for the rest, you and we were able to to make it happen. So
2: it's funny. I've had a, a similar situation in kind of two different areas. One, when I used to work at, when I was a little bit younger in college, I used to work at a credit union, and we used to have to wear a shirt and tie. So anytime I would go to a store after work and I was all dressed up, I would get treated entirely different than if I went to that same store. Just dressed like on the weekends as like I would normally wear clothes. You get treated totally different just from what you were wearing. And then there was another time with a real estate deal where I was looking to buy a property and I was gonna buy it all cash. And I was I made the offer all cash. It was a really cheap property and the seller wanted proof of funds, which I think is honestly fair of them to ask for. But it was just a hassle because it was in a couple different banks and I didn't want to. It was the weekend, I think, and I didn't want to have to worry about getting the letter from the bank. And it was just this whole big thing. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to back out of this deal. And they're like, okay, we have a bunch of other offers. We're going to take those. A couple of days later, they called us back. Oh, are you interested in the property? Do you want to buy it? And sure enough, I ended up actually buying the property. And so it ended up working out. But similar situation to what you guys said. What do you, the terms of the deals look like with the people that you do creative financing with or use other people's money?
1: Yeah, great question. And honestly, people... People will think when we use creative financing right off the hop, they're going, "Oh, high interest, right?" And yeah, some of the deals will be higher interest, right? Like some like that of the 119 units last year that we purchased, first mortgages of somewhere in the eights for interest only, right? So no one wants to pay that. No one, I've paid double, uh, double uh, digits. It just honestly, it depends on the deal. So we've paid zero percent interest. We've paid two, five, eight, double digits. We've done interest only. We've done principal and interest. We've done balloon payments. It literally just depends on the deal. So that's one thing when we're negotiating with the seller, everything we do is a win-win, right? We're not going in trying to steal everything from, from the seller. We did that in the beginning and, and it just eventually that catches up with you and, and then people don't want to deal with you. So we realized quickly in the beginning, it has to be a win-win. And again, this is not going to be with every deal, but it's structuring it where, hey, they get what are they looking for? If they're looking for a quick closing, okay, well, then make it a quick closing. If they're looking for a longer term, because they, they, for capital gains purposes, they want to spread that, that gain over a period of five years, then make it a five year term. If they're looking for, you know, it just depends on what they're looking for, higher down payment initially. So every deal, and I know that's not the answer, it's a very vague answer. It's just every deal is so different. And as long as it works for us and works for them, and we have the clear exit, uh, we say it all the time. We want the seller. I know it sounds crazy, but we're okay with the seller making money or with private lenders making money because if, if we're able to buy an asset with none of our own money up front, it takes a year, 18 months, two years until it comes to fruition, depending on the deal. And then we refinance, pay everyone out. And then we have that asset for the next 20, 30 years. Who cares if they made money and if the deal still makes sense, right? I'm happy. And that is word of mouth. And then that guy with the van, he actually became a private lender after he got the funds from the sale of that property. So it's bigger picture, win-win. I know I'm very vague on the terms and everything, but it just—it literally depends on the
2: deal. Why are owners willing to sell their finance properties to you? What's the biggest selling point for them that you guys see?
0: It's from a tax perspective and not everybody's going, going to do it. You're right. Uh, we, we have to get some no's because some need their money. Some people want to keep buying properties they're likely not going to hold financing for you in those cases. But some people who may not have planned ahead of time, this really benefits them from a tax perspective. So that's one reason. The other reason is because if it's not listed anywhere yet, they don't have to pay realtor fees. So of course, they, they save on that as well. So it's another win. And we pay them interest, right? There's a reason from a financial perspective on top of taxes that they want to do it as well.
1: Yeah, like we've had widows where, hey, this was my husband's thing. Now I'm stuck with... like To them, it's a problem. So we come along and it's succession planning for them, we help them with that. And then they they get to sell the asset. We've had people as well where it just was bad timing or partnerships have broken up and now they just want to liquidate. But the taxes is one of the biggest thing. I know there's the 1031 obviously in the States, but not everyone does it. So they basically get to take the money that they don't receive. So basically, the money that they're holding in the form of a mortgage for you with their equity, they don't get taxed on in the year that they that uh, that the building sells. So, which means because typically when they sell a building, they get all that income in the same year, which brings them up to the higher tax bracket, and then they you know pay through the nostrils. So, the money that they don't receive, they can spread it up to five years, right, twenty percent per year, right? So, up to five years, and it just helps them tax wise. And a lot of landlords love that monthly cash flow. And now, when their investment goes, some of them don't know what they what to do with it. So, the, at least this way, they still get a monthly check. They don't have to deal with tenants or toilets. They get it from investors. So there's a lot of win-wins in those scenarios. But again, some people, when they, if they would need their funds for something else, seller financing isn't even an option.
2: The third step in your easy or new way framework is one that I actually wasn't even familiar with. Maybe I am, maybe I just don't know the name, but you call it a 97% tenant in your property. What exactly is a 97% tenant and how does it work?
0: And we've had thousands of tenants Throughout the years, and, and when we started, we've done it all. We've done it where we were doing our own property management, the viewings, the cleaning, everything, the dump runs. We've done it where we had we were managing other people's properties. We had it where we had our own internal staff. We had it where we have a, another property manager that we that, that we hire in our city, and of course now worldwide as well. We have property managers. We we came up with this rule that if you do your due diligence, if you know how to carefully and strategically either choose the tenants strategically or hire the right type of property management company. There's no reason why you have tons and tons of tenants not paying rent or damaging your properties. And, and we came up with that, this 97% rule based on, on statistics that the majority of people are really, really good. Uh-huh. Yes, there are people out there that will damage your property or, or not pay rent. But if you know how to choose them and select them wisely and strategically, it shouldn't be much higher than that.
2: The last step in your framework is to force the lift to get immediate appreciation. Explain what this means and how you guys do it.
1: There's different ways. The one that we like the most, the quickest and the the least time consuming and labor intensive is basically purchasing. So it's the Burr, right? And everyone's always asking us if we do the Burr and it's like, yeah, we were we did it before it was called the Burr. We just called it common sense, right? Because it was buying an underperforming asset and lifting its valuation. So to keep it kind of short and to the point, it's buying an underperforming asset, trying to find the ones that don't need these massive gut jobs like you see on HGTV and all these shows. It's buying the ones that I'm not saying that they're mismanaged. There might be deferred maintenance. It might just be a landlord that's had it for 30 years and it's no longer the, the love of their life, right? So they're just, ah, eh, they, they, they just want ease. So it's getting into it, reducing expenses, increasing income right? So on paper, it looks better. And then it's also doing cosmetic things like uh, paint does wonders, right? Painting a place, maybe changing a countertop, putting in a new vanity, some flooring, nothing earth shattering, but just giving it that fresher look so that a new tenant comes in, pays a higher rent, which means you've repositioned, stabilized the asset, and then it appraises higher. So there's that method. There is also, we've done gut jobs where we purchased bank repos from drug dealer houses and things like that. And we've gutted them and lifted the appreciation, but that's typically it. We're we're lifting the evaluation of the asset through forced appreciation. Or if you're in a hot market, you can buy an asset, basically almost do nothing, and year over year it just because of the market evaluation, it goes up as well. So it just depends on where you are and, and what your play is going to be.
2: Very frequently I have people reach out and ask if the real estate strategies that we talk about on this show apply to countries outside of the US. These are people that are not Based in the U.S., but still listen to the show. You guys have properties in multiple countries, so how do your strategies of investing apply in different countries? What are some of the similarities, the differences, and what do you guys see as differences from all the different countries you're in?
1: So far, yeah. So the states, obviously, most of your uh, Canada's fairly uh, similar as the U.S. We don't have the 1031, so even if you sell a property, an income property that isn't your primary pr- principal residence. Even if you literally close the deal, take that money and buy another property with, kind of like you do with the ten thirty one, you still get tax capital gains on it. There is no way of of, uh, of deferring that mm-hmm. tax. So Canada is very similar. Mexico, what we're doing basically, and in Costa Rica, some of the differences is more of how you're set up. So let's say Canada, I can't talk for the states, but Canada does not have a treaty with Costa Rica, but it does have one with Mexico. So it changes how you're set up structure wise. The other thing as well is. To get a loan in, let's say, Mexico or Costa Rica, it's going to be private money at huge percentages. It shows that it's going to be low, but when you read the fine print, it's going to be high in the double digits. So the difference is instead of doing, you can do seller financing, but the difference is instead of getting bank loans or things like that, like we do here, we'll get hard money lenders, we'll get B lenders, just different people. There, it's going to be basically borrowing funds. What we're doing is borrowing the funds here in Canada, purchasing the asset with those funds in the other country. And then getting that that appreciation over time. So it's buying in those markets that are up and coming. And then or, or even pre-constructions, right? So by the time it comes to fruition, it's already gone up. You can assign to someone else or sell it. So that's kind of the play there. And it's more short-term rental. Yeah.
0: And when it comes to the property management piece, because of course once you you have it, it's it's more or less the same, right? It's it's asking the same kind of questions, making sure they're doing their due diligence, making sure your properties is being taken care of, make sure that you're getting the rents at market value to keep the, the value of your property and all that as well. So it's, we don't see a big difference between various areas. It's just a matter of really making sure that you have a strong network and that you're doing your due diligence.
2: How are you guys picking your locations? And I want to talk about this from a couple of different perspectives. So within your own country, how are you picking within Canada which areas to invest in? And then other countries? So the US, how are you picking within the US? And then how do you pick the countries to invest in? Why Costa Rica? Why Mexico? Why not any other country that you could potentially invest in?
1: Yeah. So in Canada, it comes down to some pretty basic things. So it's reverse engineering our goals. And one of the biggest things is landlord-friendly states and provinces, right? So like in Canada, Let's say British Columbia and Ontario is similar to like the West Coast. The California is tenant friendly, so is British Columbia. Ontario is tenant friendly, kind of like a New York type thing. So it's picking different provinces. So Alberta is a landlord friendly state. That's why we're picking Texas. It's landlord friendly. Same with Florida, Georgia, kind of like the the southern the, the 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 red states. It's kind of like a quick rule of thumb. So there's that, and then it just depends on again what you're looking for. So like right now we're looking in Miami because that has just a huge increase. Right, You can buy a property this year, next year, it's a hot market. So we know we don't have to do too much and the property is going to just appreciate without having to really do too much to it. And then we're looking at some Northern places in Texas where the price per door is, is pretty low and the cash flow is decent and it doesn't take too much to get into it. So it's just these different plays in different places as per Costa Rica and Mexico, it's looking for where you know Airbnb stats, making sure where are people going as uh, as the the um, what are we in again A pandemic? As the pandemic continues, people keep flocking to, to different countries, so it, it's seeing where people are going and kind of trying to get ahead of that uh, that curve.
0: Yeah, and I'll just kind of add on as well because I I'm sure some listeners are thinking, but I don't feel comfortable going outside of my area. Can I still do it? Perhaps I don't live in a landlord friendly province or state and Yes, it can still be done. We're in Ontario, we own hundreds of apartments here. So that being said, it can we be still that. can be done, but this should be part of your screening, of course, with the property management and to make sure that you're picking the right tenants. And also should be part of your calculations as well. If you're investing in a place where it's not quite as landlord friendly, take that into consideration because if a tenant doesn't pay, it might take longer before you get that money if you ever see it mm-hmm. at all. So you need to make sure that you're prepared for that as well.
2: A common concern of new investors or those looking to get started with real estate is having so much debt. We probably call it good debt, but it's still a concern for a lot of people. So how do you mentally deal with having the debt that is often associated with a large rental portfolio?
0: We love good debt. (laughs) Um, And I really would say you you need to wrap your mind around the good debt piece and knowing that, hey, I'm okay if I have this much debt, as long as it's making me this much over here and i hope to continue to have a lot more debt because i know that i'm going to be buying wisely and strategically and continue to have way more revenue from it as well so i think it really comes down to to the mindset and also understanding how to make sure to pay the people back right so we don't again never ever get into a deal we've never been late we always pay back people early because we know this before entering a deal and just because you can get for example we spoke about Owner financing earlier, just because you're able to get owner financing doesn't mean you need to do the deal or that you mm-hmm. should do the deal. We have deals on our desk that comes by through our office all the time, and we'll analyze them. and It could be a great deal; it could even cash flow from day one. But I don't buy it because I don't have my clear exit strategy. So as long as you know how to deal with debt properly, and you know that's going to make you a lot of money and a lot more money, and you know how to pay back everyone in due time then there's no reason to be afraid from it.
2: We talked about a few books earlier that have been impactful in both our lives, but what would you both say has been the most influential book in your life?
0: Well, I mean, I think probably the, the one that, that we mentioned uh, was a huge one for me. But outside of that one, I'd probably say the, the, the 10X rule from Grant Cardone. I was always a, a big thinker and I felt that maybe I wasn't allowed or why am I thinking so big? And I remember when I was in my 30s, I had a goal of buying 10 properties before I turned 40. And I told everybody my goal. And I remember everybody basically saying, How oh, that's ridiculous. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> you know, you're going to be too busy. Every single reason why I shouldn't do it. You Naysayers, know, right? And, but by the time I turned 40, I had 27 properties and I, and I crushed that goal. And, and I think that book just really, Allowed me to think big and, and, and we still do. I mean, we, we always think big and with big goals requires big action, but that also comes with big results.
2: Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. So, what question do you guys have for me?
1: Yeah, I'm curious why house hacking? Like, again, I, Mel kind of did house hacking on our first deal, and there's so many different ways. Uh, I think I know what the answer is, but why was your go to uh, house hacking out of curiosity?
2: So, when I first started, I was not planning to be a real estate investor at all. I just accidentally house hacked one time by complete mistake. And then, by doing that, it kind of like opened the doors for me, brought down all the limiting beliefs that I had, and made me realize that I'd become a real estate investor. And then from there, I've house hacked two more times, going on my fourth soon. And I just think it's one of the absolute best strategies. You get started with so little money down. And if you buy the right deal, they can cash flow. You can buy essentially a rental property with such little money because you only have to live there for a year. And then once you move out after a year, you could have a traditional rental property and it could be great cash flow. And so for me, I just think it's it's one of the absolute best strategies that you can do if you're willing to kind of make the sacrifice to live in in what sometimes is not the perfect situation so that you can house act. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's why for me kind of fell into it accidentally and just have really, really enjoyed the strategy since then.
1: That's awesome. Eh? Falling, uh, backwards into an investment that has now changed
2: your life. I love it. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. Like you guys said, Exactly.
0: Agreed. exactly. Agreed. you took advantage of that situation and learned from it and grew. So that's great.
2: Where can the audience go guys to connect with you? Maybe find you on the internet. Where, where do you want to point them?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we're on all social media platforms. So on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, LinkedIn. So it's always Investor Mel Dave. So whatever channel you're on, Investor Mel Dave is always our handle. And uh, we, we give different content on every single channel. So yeah, so you can find us there.
2: All right. I'll be sure to put a link to your guys' resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Mel, Dave, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank yeah. you so much. It was great speaking thanks, with Robert. you. <laughs>